This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to Trumpet Hour. I'm Philip Nice, and today is Friday, December 8th. A special date for us this week as December 7th. Yesterday was the anniversary of the start of the publisher of the Philadelphia Trumpet News Magazine. Go to thetrumpet.com slash subscribe for your copy, your subscription to the Philadelphia Trumpet. Uh, you and I are joined today by four men who are staff writers for the Philadelphia Trumpet News Magazine. We have Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. Andrew Miller. Hello. And over in our studio in Britain are Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And Mihailo Zekic. Good to be here. And again, you can avail yourself of this free magazine, Philadelphia Trumpet, at thetrumpet.com slash subscribe. This week, definitely, we need to start with the Middle East. Mihailo, you are our Middle East watcher. Give us an update on the main news stories from that region. So I'll give a few sampling of stories that all relate to one overlying theme, which our listeners could probably guess is the war in Gaza. So we've talked a lot before about the progress Israel had been making, uh, reaching towards the capital of the area, you could say, Gaza City. That is more or less under Israeli control right now. There's still areas where uh, Hamas is holding out, but uh, that theater, at least at this point, is mostly settled. Israel is now, I guess you wouldn't really call it a besiege, more like uh, an intrusion into Khan Yunis, which is uh, the biggest city in southern Gaza, had roughly 400,000 people before the war started. Who knows how many are there now since everybody fled from the north. That's where uh, Hamas's political leader in Gaza, Yahya Sinwar, lives. Uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said that going after Sinwar and himself specifically is obviously a huge target of this. We haven't really heard anything since he's made that statement a few days ago. So who knows if Sinwar has fled, who knows if the attack is still going on, but we're certainly going to keep our ears open for more news from there. And also another little related story, Israel has also released uh, footage showing the IDF setting up pumps on the Mediterranean coast, getting ready to flood Gaza's infamous tunnel network with seawater. The tunnel network is obviously an advantage Gaza has with sweeping away its soldiers, which hiding hostages, hiding weapons caches. It makes the conflict a bit harder. Flooding the tunnels would be a good way to neutralize that problem. And considering how often Israel's Arab enemies often say about throwing all Jews into the sea, I can't help but feel like this is a little bit poetic justice on how they're dealing with this problem. It still has yet to be confirmed whether they're going to be actually going through with this, but they're getting set up for it at least. The IDF soldiers are getting close. I don't I don't know if this is authentic. I was trying to check if it was, but I saw an image of a IDF soldier in his gloved hand holding the credit card of one of those leaders of Hamas. If that's authentic, they are getting close indeed. Your main story is also about this conflict, but from perhaps a little bit of a zoomed out perspective. Yes. So on Wednesday, the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, took the rare move of invoking Article 99 of the United Nations Charter in an effort to use his authority to put a stop to what's going on in Gaza. That might sound a little bit scary. In practice, this doesn't actually change the situation on the ground too much. 
This is how Article 99 reads, quote, the Secretary General may bring to the attention of the Security Council any matter which, in his opinion, may threaten the maintenance of international peace and security, end quote. So in other words, this is basically using his powers to force the Security Council to look into this. The Security Council has been looking into this. They have had a hard time trying to agree with getting things done. The United States and Russia characteristically have been sparring. So people may wonder what the big deal of this is. Well, you don't have to take my word for it that it's a big deal. Uh, but if for us, it is, a, it is a very powerful move on behalf of the Secretary General. And we hope that members of the Security Council will be moved by it. And we hope the international community will be moved by it to, uh, to push and put in place a humanitarian ceasefire. But it's essentially there to bring attention to an issue that the councils had has the council's attention already. So I don't understand what the point is. Well, the point is to push a little bit more. Now, that was Guterres's spokesman, Stéphane Dejaric, who, despite his French name, you could hear has a very American accent. He was speaking with South African media. And his words, not mine. This is the Secretary General's way of pushing a little bit more to get a ceasefire undergone in Gaza. Think about everything I just said in the rundown of the war at the start. The operation's not done yet, but it's getting very, very close to that. It's getting very close to removing Hamas from Gaza. It's getting close to removing this jihadist terrorist organization that murders, that rapes, that uses its own people as human shields out of the picture in this disputed territory, which Israel has said they want an international coalition to come in and manage the day after once Hamas is gone we're getting closer than ever to at least a step in the right direction from a purely immediate future physical perspective of getting the situation in Gaza cleaned up to a degree and Guterres is doing all he can to put a stop to that obviously again his power is limited in this regard but he's called for a ceasefire before but a ceasefire essentially means leaving Hamas in Gaza. They could call it whatever they want. They could call it, you know, time to release uh, release the hostages or bring in more medical supplies or whatnot. International actors already said they hope that once the next ceasefire gets going, that it could be a long-term one that leads to a peace. In other words, Hamas does not get justice served to it for what it did on October 7th. And everything else it's done since 2007, running the Gaza Strip to its own people as well as to Israelis and all those dual citizens from other countries that it went after. And the fact that you think about any other terror group like ISIS or the Taliban or whatever, yes, people may do things that help them out, but nobody's generally speaking arguing that they're good guys and that you know they need to stay where they are if they say something like that it's from more of a pragmatic standpoint for some of these groups this in this case this is the secretary general of the united nations trying to give hamas a lifeline why what makes a difference in isis or the taliban or all these other groups it's because they're going after jews it's because they're killing jews they want jewish territory it's because israel is the other side of the equation there's no other reason why they would do this so the united nations invoking article 99 is just rhetoric on the one hand but most of what the united nations has is rhetoric, right? That's what it that's what it has to assert mostly until you get to the Security Council. And to Article 99 was not invoked when terrorists flowed into Jewish families' houses and murdered and raped and tortured and abducted. It was not invoked. 
then, but now, and it was not invoked when Israel first invaded Gaza, but now that Israel is getting close, I would say, just from my little chair, to changing the status quo a little bit, to neutralizing the Hamas threat or making large strides to doing that, the United Nations musters its rhetoric to say, okay, our term of mourning, our time of sympathy for the Jewish people is over. Now it's time to resume the United Nations classic bias against Israel. I've heard this before. It's it's happening again, even in the bloody aftermath of October 7th. This is the first time this article has been invoked since 1989 during the Lebanese Civil War. Antonio Guterres has been in, in his office since 2016. 17. Just this year, there's plenty of bigger excuses to use that the Ukraine war, what's happening in Sudan, in Armenia, etc. And he reserved it for now. And again, like you said, it's mostly rhetoric. But as, as a spokesman just said there, yes, we don't have much more than rhetoric. So we're going to do all we can to turn it into action. We're pushing to get it more going. Like nobody's listening to me. So I'm putting my foot down. Right. And then once you put it out there, once you put re- rhetoric out there, then you do begin to back it up with diplomatic resources, with economic resources, with other resources. Once you've committed to this is our position on this issue, otherwise you lose all your credibility. So Rhetoric is just rhetoric, but it leads to major changes on the ground. That's clearly the intent here is to prevent a major change on the ground that would eliminate this tool that not only does radical Islam have, but much of the world has this tool, this wedge against the Israeli state, the Jewish state, which is Hamas. Your pre-show notes pointed to a certain scripture and piece of literature Yes. So a prophecy we go to often on the trumpet for a different country, but still ties into now or this subject is Second Kings 14 verses 26 to 28. It talks about a conspiracy to blot out the name of Israel under heaven and that it gets really close. So there's no helper for Israel. Uh, this is technically speaking of the United States and our book that uh, our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Fleury, wrote America Under Attack can help. Uh, show that. But verse 28 brings Judah into the picture. The prophecy is that eventually America will get deliverance from this blotting out. But Judah, or the state of Israel today, a bit of a misnomer, prophetically speaking, but the modern day Jews, they're going to get something back with this as well, which suggests that they're both America and Israel are going through similar problems. And that's going to take the same solution to at least alleviate the suffering and bring some measure of prosperity and strength back. For our literature, if anybody would like to be interested, I plugged this on the Wednesday program this week, and I'll plug it again. Our January 2024 print edition just went to the presses and should be reaching mailboxes soon, but hopefully it's not too late for those that haven't subscribed to subscribe to the Philadelphia Trumpet and get that issue in your mailboxes. It has a lot of up-to-date information with what's going on in Gaza, some of, as well as some of the background as to what's led to this, what it means as far as the Bible is concerned, where we can expect this to going forward. And so if our listeners would like to learn more about that, I'd recommend either they order that or look for the PDF on the website. And another critical part of this story that's in that upcoming Trumpet print edition is, a, is an article by executive editor Stephen Flurry betraying Israel in its hour of need. The United Nations can be a solely rhetorical power. In theory, the United Nations has a huge amount of power. 
you know, it can impose sanctions on any country in the world. It can tell the rest of the world, go to war with this country. Uh, what prevents that power being used is it requires the unanimous consent of the Security Council members, the permanent members of the Security Council. And as anti-Israel as the United Nations repeatedly gets, the one thing helping and protecting Israel has been the United States' seat on the Security Council, that the United States veto will veto anything that is just too anti-Israel, or really anti-Semitic to call it what it is, this obsession with one country of the world above all others. And when you look at what we, the other news that we've had from this week, just more and more coming out from Anthony Blinken's visit to Israel, where he's told Israel, you've got to wrap this war up pronto. We want you know, no more ground invasion by the beginning of January, or at least the early days of January. We want you out then. Lots of almost threatening the Israeli government to, to stop this. If the Security Council does start pushing for anti-Israel activities and then America no longer has Israel's back, that could be really damaging. There are things that Israel, that the UN could do that could really hurt. So I think this is a story where you bring in just this betrayal of Israel from the Biden government that's really the Obama government, and this becomes something that could be practically very dangerous. And it ties right into that prophecy that that Mahalo was just talking about with there being no helper for Israel, both Israel and the Middle East and Britain and America, that they're under attack within and without. And that component of the pressure from the United States is an absolutely massive part of this story. And I think we'll see more of that in the weeks and months ahead, just how they don't like Netanyahu. And so how much are they turning a blind eye to Iran for that reason? You know, what more have they been doing? But that point, I think, just how the Biden administration is harming Israel in this fight is a massive part of the story that we've got coming from this. Right. And as you said, that's in the Trumpet print edition, which is available to you, dear listener, at thetrumpet.com. If you haven't subscribed, the address is thetrumpet.com slash subscribe. It was December 7th, 1989, that editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry established the Philadelphia Church of God, which would subsequently publish the first edition of the uh, Philadelphia Trumpet in February. So we're actually coming up on our anniversary issue. But as you say there, this January issue, we labored over that issue quite a bit, trying to get this right. And one of the most important articles in there is the one that you you mentioned by executive editor Stephen Flurry. So again, thetrumpet.com slash subscribe or view it online at the trumpet.com homepage. Uh, you just heard from Richard Palmer. They're weighing in on the Middle East conflict and on the, the United States' role. He also watches Europe. Mr. Palmer, what's our quick update on Europe this week? Lots of meetings this week in Europe. The top EU officials were meeting with China. We've been covering this trend of the EU and China building strong trade ties. This is something that is a direct fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Isaiah chapter 23 is a specific prophecy of a massive trading alliance between Europe and China. But the reality of that trading alliance right now is pretty one-sided. China is benefiting a lot more than Europe. So that's what this meeting was all about, was trying to make this a more equal relationship. This concern over things being lopsided, it's the same reason why Italy just pulled out of China's Belt and Road Initiative. They were one of the founding or kind of one of the first European countries to get on board with this. They are quitting that now. So the, don't expect this to be the end, though, of European-Chinese relationships Instead, watch for this to shift towards that more equal relationship that the Bible talks about. And I think it will take Europe standing up for itself quite robustly before you will have that kind of equal relationship, because China is going to 
get everything that they can from this. They're not going to voluntarily make it a, a relationship with equ- of equals. Uh, and so I think we're still seeing that prophecy be fulfilled, even in this confrontation. Another key meeting also revolved around another key trade block. This was between the European Union and the Latin American trade bloc, Mercosur, yesterday, where there was a strong pu- – Europe and, and Mercosur for years, for decades, they've been trying to get a free trade agreement that would cover – three quarters of a billion people. It would be a massive trade deal if it happens. It would be a massive step for Latin America drawing closer to Europe, away from the United States. This is something with huge geopolitical significance, and they've not been able to do it. And they failed once again. It's just a a year after year of failure here because getting an agreement when any four Mercosur countries or any 27 EU nations can block everything for any reason is a nightmare. And it just happens again and again and again. So we forecast that you will have a Mercosur trade deal, that it will be a a massive event for the world. But in 2019, Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry wrote, before Europe can be closely tied to Latin America, something will have to change. The current politically and religiously disunified EU will have to become politically, military, and religiously unified Holy Roman Empire. So we're watching for this to be fulfilled. This will be a game changer for the United States to have Europe moving into that region and establishing a really close partnership with that region. They've already got a close partnership. This would bring it to a much more formal level, but it's going to take a changed Europe to make that happen. That's what we saw this week. We also had another article on the website by our very own Andrew Miller from this panel talking about the former Italian president, Mario Draghi, saying, well, it was a big mistake to make the EU this big. It needs to be smaller so that we can make decisions so that we can move forwards on. He was talking about other issues. So watch for this pressure for Europe to sink down to this much more lean, mean organization that we've been forecasting since some of the earliest trumpet print issues. That's right. And we talk about rhetoric. We talk about negotiations. We talk about signing deals, withdrawing from deals. And these do feel like uh, faraway things that are kind of hard to understand, but they are consequential. Sometimes they work out. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they ebb. Sometimes they flow. But what is at stake here is millions and millions and billions and billions of dollars worth of resources, worth of arrangements. If the free market shows us anything, it shows us that the power of aligning markets, of aligning productive capabilities, and the United States was a superpower in and after World War too, because of that capability, because it could marshal all of its resources. And that's what these nations are are aiming to do. So it was actually one of your early articles, Mr. Palmer, on the Belt and Road Initiative. It might have been early enough that it was still called the, uh, was it the One Belt, One Road Initiative that really opened my eyes to the power, the fearsome power of these types of deals. And as you said, there can be gridlock. There usually is a gridlock when people have their sovereignty still, they, they can block the things that they don't like. But once you get into crisis mode, things can happen more more quickly. Your main topic, we'll just hit pretty quickly, is kind of related to a warning sign of what crisis mode would look like in Europe. That's right. We've already been talking a fair bit about our next Trumpet print edition. I'd like to start by quoting from what I'm sure is the most important article in this next Trumpet print edition. As you watch Gaza, watch Germany from uh, Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry. And he says that of all the developments since this October 7th attack, the most important one is being overlooked completely by most people. The most shocking problem in the Middle East is not what is happening in Gaza, but what is happening with Germany. 
And he really emphasizes the importance to watch a German-led Europe getting much more involved in the Middle East. And that's really what our main story is all about. It's yet another provocation for bringing that German-led European power to get more involved in the Middle East. So over this weekend, the Islamic State inspired two terrorist attacks at opposite ends of the world. Yes, they're still around. You may have stopped hearing about them, but they are still inspiring terrorist attacks. So there was a 26-year-old man in Paris with two Iranian parents. He tried to go on the rampage with a knife and a hammer. He yelled, Alu Akbar. He stabbed a German Filipino tourist to death just next to the Eiffel Tower. He ran from police. He attacked a couple more people with his hammer before the police tasered him. And he posted a video where he pledged allegiance to the Islamic State. And then in the Philippines, around the same weekend, you had four die in an explosion during a Catholic mass at a university where, again, the Islamic State claimed responsibility, saying that its members caused the blast. So that is a, a critical reason for Europe to get involved in the Middle East. You know, these terrorist attacks and, and striking at the root of these terrorist attacks. And the same weekend, we had a news story where Europe's current attempts uh, and maybe more half-hearted attempts to deal with these problems is completely falling apart. So one of the major ungovernable zones within, shall we say, the greater Middle East that has become a massive breeding ground for terrorism. It's a basis of operation. It's starting to play a role similar to that Afghanistan played before 9-11 and being a safe haven for terrorists is the Sahel region. This region, Sahel just means the coasts. If the Sahara Desert was an ocean, the Sahel would be its coastland. It's the region that's kind of on the coast of the Sahara Desert. And Europe's top way of engaging with this region and trying to bring order to this region has been through this alliance called the G5 Sahel. It's five African countries where their armies have basically been directed by France and they've been trying to bring some order to the Sahel. Well, Mali quit this G5 alliance last year. It's effectively already been the G4. Burkina Faso and Niger announced that they would be quitting on Saturday. So basically this G5, it's now a G2. The majority have left. It's debunked. They've kind of officially disbanded it. So We've seen coups in Mali now and in Niger and other places. France's attempts to meet the problem of radical Islam in West Africa has now utterly failed. Like every initiative that they have had has just about fallen apart completely. So I think this is going to pave the way for some of that crisis mode that you talked about and uh, as you set this up and for some pretty big changes in policy and how Europe deals with this area. And Daniel 11 is the key chapter of prophecy that we come back to again and again for this region that lists a clash between a Muslim king of the south and a European king of the north. It lists Libya, Ethiopia, and Egypt as being part of this king of the south alliance. They're in the list of countries that the king of the north conquers, implying that they're its enemies. And they it, this shows that a lot of this clash is going to take place in the region of Africa. And I think also over the weekend, you saw a story that, that ties right in with what happens in Daniel chapter 11, where in our book, The King of the South, Mr. Flurry talks about that you, know, you look at where Libya, Ethiopia, and Egypt, these three countries listed there are, and they're on critical sea lanes. They're on the Red Sea and they're on the Mediterranean Sea. And over the weekend, you had three civilian attack ships attacked in the Red Sea. The USS Kearney came and shot down three drones after responding for, for calls to help. The US military said that Yemen's Houthi rebels were behind this attack. I and mean, we're seeing all of these different elements of Daniel 11 come together. We're seeing a push 
from radical Islam against the king of the north. We're seeing Africa be involved. We're seeing trade routes being involved. All of this news ties directly into Daniel 11. And so a study into Daniel 11 and our book, The King of the South, it's great for understanding the Middle East. More importantly, it's just such a powerful proof of the living God. You can go through that book. That book puts the Bible under a microscope. It zooms in on specific words and shows that this can help us understand God's mind, understand events that are happening in the world today. And so it's our book, The King of the South, a great resource to also boost your faith in God and just the power of the Bible as his word. So much of the world, so much of the West, so much of Europe want the wedge of Islamic terrorism to remain in the side of the Jewish state of Israel, but nobody wants it to remain in themselves and in their midst. And they are trying to deal with it. As you said, there in the Sahel. It keeps reminding, it keeps pushing <laughs> its way in, reminding people that it, it's not gone away and Europe will deal with it. So indeed, as you watch Gaza, watch Germany, that title of the upcoming Philadelphia Trumpet cover story from the editor-in-chief, Gerald Flurry. As you watch Gaza, watch Germany. And also go to the trumpet.com and request The King of the South by editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry. Original copyright date, 1992. The King of the South. You're listening, and thank you for listening to Trumpet Hour Week in Review. We'll be right back. listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. You are listening to Trumpet Hour, and now you will be listening to Philadelphia Trumpet staff writer Jeremiah Jacques with an update for you on what we often call the Kings of the East, the massive region of the world called Asia. Yes. First of all, another story about demography. We spoke last week about Vladimir Putin imploring Russian women to birth more babies. Well, this week, Kim Jong-un in North Korea went one step further. He was giving a speech similar to Putin's, just saying that, you know, North Korea needs more browbeaten citizens for him to rule over, especially since the population is shrinking. And in North Korea, it's not hard to see why that's the case. The people are miserable and generally don't want to bring children into the world to, to suffer all of that misery. So Kim begged them to have more children, and in the middle of this speech, he started crying. The video footage shows him using a Kleenex on his eyes, and uh, you can hear emotion, you know, constricting his voice. And many of the women present started to cry as well when they saw this. So Kim Jong-un wants to rule over more people so badly, it brings him to tears. And who knows, maybe this emotional display will help him. The next story here is about China. China's economic troubles are intensifying. And this week, Moody's credit rating agency downgraded its outlook for Chinese sovereign bonds to negative. So that isn't necessarily that surprising. I think everyone saw this coming. But what caught my eye about this story was that just before Moody's announced that it had cut its outlook on China, the company advised all of its staff who were working in Beijing and Shanghai not to come into work that day. So the company, you know, understands that the Chinese Communist Party is a deeply repressive autocracy, essentially a thug regime that has zero qualms about using violence against anyone even remotely critical 
of the party. Foreign companies operating in China have recently been suffering all kinds of police raids, exit bans, even arrests of staff members. So Moody's told their staff not to take the risk. And it just shows how quickly China is transforming into an extremely belligerent nation that is not safe for foreign workers or even uh, visitors. Next up is a Russia story. This week, Vladimir Putin made the rounds in the Middle East. He traveled to the United Arab Emirates and to Saudi Arabia. He was there to try to align their oil production policies with Russia's and maybe just to try to reassure these Sunni states about Russia's deepening ties with Iran, since they're uneasy about that. But what was really remarkable was how much these nations rolled out the red carpet for Putin. In the UAE, there were fighter jets painting the sky with the colors of the Russian flag and just a huge delegation of officials to meet Putin. And Putin also met with the president there. And it was very similar in Saudi Arabia, just all kinds of fanfare and high-level meetings, including a meeting with Saudi crown prince Mohammed bin Salman. So this is notable because in the West, we like to think that we've kind of isolated Putin, made him a global pariah because of his war. But here we see nations that are supposed to be, at least on some level, U.S. partner nations. And they went to great lengths to show their people and the world that Putin is far from isolated. The CCP on that first story about Moody's, that's the same party that I think it was last week you said dispatched thugs to San Francisco, California, United States to intimidate and beat people who might be protesting the visit of uh, the uh, autocrat almost of, of China. Moody's is an international company, but it's based at Seven World Trade Center, right? It's an American company, uh, New York City. So it's showing itself to be fearful of the Chinese Communist Party, which, as, as so many of your updates have been showing, is becoming and is an international uh, threat with its tentacles. In, in, in New York City, even one of your updates was about how there's, pol- quote unquote, police stations of the Chinese yeah. Communist Party in New York City. But your main story goes back to Russia and Vladimir Putin and the United States. That's right. Yes. I I think the biggest story for the week is just that Putin got some excellent news from the U.S. Congress. This was just yesterday when policymakers in the U.S. failed to pass a sweeping foreign security assistance bill that would have given significant aid to both Israel and Ukraine. This was a $110 billion bill. And besides providing you know, aid to Israel and Ukraine. It was also for Taiwan and for various other U.S. security priorities. But it was blocked by Senate Republicans because they're furious about the shameful crisis at the U.S. border with Mexico. And so these Republicans are basically saying, until this security package is amended to include drastic changes for America's border, then the the package is dead in the water. So you can certainly understand the motivation of these Republicans. The border crisis is extreme, and it is extremely destructive, just making a mockery of U.S. law, exacerbating our drug crisis, letting in legions of individuals from countries all over the world, many of whom don't seem to be here to achieve the American dream, which we'll hear more about from Andrew in just a moment. But this porous border is radically transforming the nation. So it's clear why Senate Republicans wanted to pressure Biden to force some action to be taken to deal with the border. And that was absolutely a sound strategy. And I think there does seem to be a glimmer of hope that this tactic could actually bring about some woefully overdue changes to the border. But any way you look at it, this was also very welcome news for Putin and his designs on Ukraine. 
And the Russians understand this very well. Their uh, propaganda channels have been just buzzing with glee since yesterday. The commentators are breaking out the champagne, just rejoicing, even having debates about the best ways to punish any surviving Ukrainians after their now inevitable Caesar of the nation is, is complete. But despite all the rejoicing in, in Moscow, it's unlikely that America's decision to end its aid to Ukraine would bring an end to the war, at least not in the near term. The West stops supporting Ukraine. That doesn't end the war. That just means Ukraine won't be able to fight as effectively as they are doing today. The war will become more devastating and deadly for Ukrainian soldiers. More Ukrainians will suffer and die. Russia's chances will improve. That was geostrategist Jake Bro there. And if you spend some time understanding the zeitgeist, the, the mood in Ukraine right now, you know that he's right. Even though this is a big gift for Putin and a big blow to Ukraine, it doesn't mean Ukraine will stop fighting. The Ukrainians still have that history of the Holodomor in their minds freshly when Stalin killed six or seven million of them. And then you combine that with the recent atrocities committed by Russian forces over the last couple of years. With all of that in mind, I think Ukraine will keep fighting despite a possible end to U.S. aid, not just to the last man, but I think they'll keep fighting to the last 10-year-old boy big enough to pick up a rifle. You know, so I, I don't see a peace being negotiated, at least not in the near term. But that aside, it does look like some of the best news in months for this man that the trumpet keeps such a close eye on, Vladimir Putin. So as you've laid it out so well there, this is, you know, so the reasons for these decisions are understandable. And there are many things that you can talk about, different ways you can look at these issues. And each of these issues, particularly the border, even one sub-issue of the border is a major, major issue. But you presented this from a specific angle, the effect on Russia and specifically the effect on the strength of one man, Vladimir Putin. Why do you present it from that particular angle? Yeah, well, the trumpet has been saying since the war start that Russia will most likely win and that even if it doesn't win, it will at least not lose too badly. And we've maintained that whatever happens, Putin will remain in power We've maintained that because Ezekiel 38.2 talks about a figure in the modern era who is described, if you read it in the New King James Version, as the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Fleury has written quite a lot about this figure over the years, and he says Rosh should be viewed as a variation for the name Russia, Meshach as a name for Moscow, and Tubal as a name for the Russian city of Tobolsk, which was once considered to be basically Russia's eastern capital. In his booklet, The Prophesied Prince of Russia, Mr. Fleury says, it's clear to him that this is describing Vladimir Putin. And he says the way it's written with those different names for the different parts of, of Russia, it shows that Putin would go on to conquer more Soviet territory, more former Soviet territory. I'll just read a little section of this. He writes, the use of all three names, Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, shows that this is an individual ruler of all the peoples of Russia from the west to the east. The reference to the cities of Moscow and Tobolsk helps us see how vast Russian territory is in these latter days. The giant swath of land indicates that the prince will probably conquer more nations of the former Soviet Union. So this booklet was written in 2017, even before Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. 
And now we see America taking a big step to stop helping Ukraine defend itself. So that signals a much tougher time ahead for Ukraine's efforts to stay sovereign. And if any listener would like to better understand the details of that, I hope they'll order a free copy of that booklet, The Prophesied Prince of Russia. The Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. That's such a a fascinating uh, phrase. The biblical prophets even don't always specify a specific man in in their prophecies. Then you have Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry boldly stepping out and stating that Prince, that specific man, isn't just someone from the mists of the past or the mists of the future, but a man who is in power right now and, as he says, will remain in power despite all efforts to the contrary, Vladimir Putin. And we're seeing perhaps him growing in that power with the United States stepping back from supporting probably the former Soviet territory, I I would say, Ukraine, and him asserting himself and his power there and certainly not losing his power. So keep watching that and keep updating us, Jeremiah Jacques. Now let's hear news from Anglo-America and from Andrew Miller. Yeah, plenty of big stories in Anglo-America this week on a variety of topics. Jews are actually keeping Hanukkah today in secret in many cities in California due to rising anti-Semitism. Texas is suing the U.S. State Department for censoring conservative media. And Congress declined to pass $110 billion military aid package to Israel and Ukraine. However, despite Congress's declining to pass this $110 billion aid package, they're not doing a very good job at saving money. Uh, Actually, that's the big story I wanted to focus on this week is just how uh, a new Department of Homeland Security report estimates that American taxpayers are paying close to $500 billion a year, that aid package times five, giving education, health care, law enforcement, and other social services to illegal immigrants. The illegal immigration story, it's an ongoing crisis. Millions of people pouring across the border. I think the last time I looked is more people have crossed the border illegally under the Biden administration than actually live in the entire nation of Ireland. It's basically, it would be like if if everyone in Ireland just came here, that's the scale of this illegal immigration crisis. And why you're spending almost $500 billion a year just taking care of all these illegal immigrants. And you really can't make this stuff up. I still remember quotes from Nancy Pelosi. You remember her? She used to be the Speaker of the House talking about how Trump's $20 billion border wall proposal was both immoral and expensive, saying that, like, we can't pass Trump's border wall because we don't have the 20 billion. And then you turn around and spend 500 billion taking care of all the immigrants that walked across the wallless border every year, every year. Yeah. And the numbers keep going up. So it is getting to the point, and our executive editor, Mr. Stephen Floyd, makes that in his trumpet brief this week, funding the invasion of America, that many reasonable, logical people who aren't normally conspiracy theorists are starting to think that the Biden administration can't possibly be this incompetent to complain about a $20 billion border wall and then spend $500 billion on the crisis, that this is actually something that you're deliberately trying to bankrupt America and transform its demographic base. You, 
just reading a little bit of motive in here is like if you're a socialist politician who wants to convert America into a socialist nation, then the more people you can bring here who are used to living in socialist nations, the better for you. The El Salvadorians aren't going to complain about the Democrats' big government proposals because they're quite modest compared to what they're used to. The Americans think they're radical, but the El Salvadorians and the Guatemalans and the Hondurians and the Mexicans, they're very used to this. And so you bring enough people in here and then devalue the currency. It's a very quick way to fundamentally transform a nation. The article we'll put in the show notes is from our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Foy, this week. It's titled, Where America's Race Riots Are Leading. And I'm immigration thing isn't necessarily a race riot story, so you might wonder why we picked that. But that does have a really a good section in the middle about a verse in Deuteronomy 28, verse 52, where God's listing the curses that will come on America for disobeying him, where he said, your high and fenced walls will come down and you will be besieged in all your gates. Now that besieging in the gates is more about like sea gates, like foreign trade. But the high and fenced wall coming down is exactly what you'd see if you look at any of the video footage coming from the Mexican border. The border wall is either not there or falling down. And you've got millions of people just swarming across the border that the government's having to spend billions of dollars taking care of. That's where America's race riots are leading at thetrumpet.com. And also the Trumpet Brief you mentioned, subscribe to the Trumpet Brief email at thetrumpet.com slash brief. That's thetrumpet.com slash brief. Listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Now we move to our final segment, which is the roundtable. Mihailo Zekic, can you introduce the topic for today's roundtable? Yes. So we will be talking today about COP28. No, we're not bringing 28 policemen to monitor our conduct. We're talking about the 2023 United Nations Climate Change Conference or Conference of the Parties of the UNFCCC or simply COP28. This year, it's being held in uh, Dubai. It started in uh, November, and it will end on the 12th of this month. It happens annually. If a lot of our listeners didn't know that, they're not necessarily at fault because over time, so much talk has been being converted into so little action that a lot of mainstream media groups even don't really give it that much focus. But still interesting to think that the Congress where people are coming together on how to cut back on fossil fuels and to cut back on oil and all these things is happening in the United Arab Emirates, a country that wouldn't exist if it weren't for the fact that everybody wants their oil. You can look at that and go say, okay, it's come full circle. They've become a farce of what they're all about. But I think there's some hidden silver lining in there, at least as far as analysis is going, on what this is all about and why it's important, etc. Not necessarily good, but still important. The president of the meeting, funnily enough, is Sultan Al-Jaber, who is the head of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, which, again, shows a little bit of the, I guess you could say, how farcical it's becoming. But 
He's an interesting character in that about a month ago, he was caught getting some statements about how there's no scientific evidence that phasing out fossil fuels are going to clean up the environment and that that's going to stop global warming, etc. He's gotten to a lot of flack from that since then. He's come out and said that his comments have been misrepresented, etc. But I think this is the point of why the Emirates are holding this conference in the first place. They do not believe that the solution to all their problems is to kill the one cash cow that makes them exist as a country in the first place. But you think about where it's being held, Dubai. It's the city of artificial islands, of ATMs that produce gold bars, of the police ride Ferraris down the streets catching criminals in Ferraris. It's the city of the future, the city of this very glitzy vision of what everybody else in the world wants to have a slice of. Countries like the Emirates, like some of these other Gulf states, they're pretty good at seeing that if they rely on oil too much, they're not going to do well in the near future when the price of oil goes down or when some of these countries start phasing out oil and going against oil producers. They're always looking for new ways to attract foreign investment, to keep themselves in the spotlight, to keep money flowing in and out. That's why the Emirates held the World Expo not that long ago, Qatar. Of course, famously host, hosted the World Cup. Saudi Arabia just won its bid to host the World Cup down the road. I strongly suspect this is the Emirates' way of trying to stay ahead of the curve. And seeing that people are turning away from oil and other fossil fuels, and they're trying to get a slice of the pie before it's too late and before they get bankrupt. Well, that's an interesting take on it. As you're talking there, I was thinking about COP28 you know, on the one hand being just some more rhetoric and not even much negotiation, <laughs> not even much signing of agreements, uh, but just the rhetoric. And as you said, th there is some clear hypocrisy, some clearly unscientific reasoning holding it up, and yet it holds together. So COP28 and more generally tools like COP28 are important, not because of sound reasoning or because of the purposes for which they say they exist, but because they are international tools. They're international tools. It's a way of gaining power over not just your own nation, your own population, but international assertion of power over people's behavior. And we've talked about similar climate initiatives from that perspective. Yeah, this is something Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Ferry has really been on top of. The Paris Climate Change Accords that Barack Obama signed, that, that was the COP21 summit. So that was part of this whole kind of COP program. And I think James Dellingpole coined the term watermelons, green on the outside, red on the inside, that a lot of these environmental policies are a way of smuggling socialism in. Yeah, these have been a really powerful tool for bringing down the United States. And when you understand the reality that's talked about in our book, America Under Attack, that we alluded to in the first half, that you've got an administration in the US government or people in there that are actively trying to do harm I mean, environmental regulation has been a huge part of that program. And this kind of international veneer, well, we're just being good citizens of the world. It's a, it's a powerful way of packaging that. And so it has been this tool for ending America's self-sufficiency on oil. That was a, a tremendous blessing that America didn't have to worry about what was going on in the Middle East so much. And, and a lot of those pipelines initiatives have now been shut down in the name of environmental regulation. So much trade has been moved from, say, medium polluting factories in the United States to much heavier polluting factories in China, all because of environmental regulation. These regulations do not help the environment. 
you know, if you're worried about filling the atmosphere with pollutants or even carbon dioxide, making a more polluting factory in a different place does not help with that. These are things that do not help with in any shape or form with, with the environment and instead make America's economy worse, make the nation weaker. And that's what so much of this COP regulation is is all about. And, and it's it, it has been a huge tool for weakening the United States. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And right along those same lines, this was not only really to America's detriment, the, these kinds of initiatives, but also they end up empowering some of America's main adversaries. So this was a, it was a big win, I think, for China, especially and Russia, because while the U.S. and the West are pledging to curb methane, that was one of the big focuses of COP28. But at the same time that that was happening, there's this robust and growing fossil fuel partnership between Russia and China. And what we've seen with numerous climate deals over the years is China in particular will sign up and they'll say, yes, we, we plan to reduce reliance on fossil fuels. They'll sign their names right under the signatures from the U.S. and the U.K. and France and all that. But of course, with China, they have zero intent on following through. So it's essentially a big act for the Chinese, especially. On one hand, they vow to reverse their status as the world's most emitting nation on Earth. But on the other hand, they're signing more and more deals with Russia at the same time to import more fossil fuels. And there was an insightful analysis about this in The Diplomat this week. One part of that says, by expanding its reliance on Russian gas, China can claim it's trying to establish a transitional bridge between the phasing out of the coal industry and the future development of clean energy sources. However, this strategy contradicts the COP's main aim to completely phase out fossil fuels. And more importantly, it further boosts industrial development in China's major fossil fuels producing neighbor, Russia. And then let's see, another part of this says, the global community should not be distracted by the green euphoria created around the China-US climate cooperation. It must consider the bigger picture that economic security and prosperity are far more prioritized in China than green energy. So just as Mr. Palmer said there, it's something that ends up kneecapping the U.S. economy. And then on the other hand, it also empowers America's duplicitous adversaries, mostly China. I'd like to put my European hat on for a minute and, and kind of build off what Mr. Jacques said, because I think there was something different about this COP28 summit that we've not seen in previous ones. That is, I've seen a lot less of it. Mihailo mentioned, well, maybe you haven't heard of this. In the UK, you will have heard of the COP summits. Like It's often front page of the newspapers. It will be what politicians are asked about for weeks and weeks in advance. It will be a massive media spectacle. And it hasn't been that this time around. And I think that's interesting. I think it's partly because you've got the war and got, like there's just bigger things going on right now that have eclipsed it. But I think another big part of this is the rise of Hurt Wilders and his election victory in the Netherlands. It's the rise of the alternative for Deutschland in Germany. It's the yellow vest protests in France, where Europe has behaved like the United States over this issue for many years. And they've been doing harm to themselves. And I think we could be at a pivot point where that switches and we see Europe acting more like China. I mean, you look at the way that Europe behaves and they are quite happy to for, for to punish American industry. They view it as unfair that America's got unfair trade advantages. The dollar gives them an unfair advantage. You know, they're all in, on board with continuing this agenda of persuading America to weaken itself. I think you're, you're seeing a change with all of these elections where 
you're getting the rise of anti-greenism becoming a very major and powerful political tool. And I think it's quite possible that as part of this shift towards a more authoritarian Europe that we've been tracking on this show, a Europe of, of kings rather than committees and presidents, you know, we've talked about the current Europe is heading for a crisis. And you're going to see it rise like a phoenix from the ashes of that crisis. You'll see, but it will be a different Europe. It's not going to be the same kind of multicultural or you know, Europe's personality change that we've been talking about. Part of that personality change will be a personality change when it comes to environmental regulation. This environmental regulation is getting in the way with the trade deal with Latin America, for example, where the Argentina's new leader just doesn't want any of that. And perhaps this COP summit could be a turning point in Europe, rejecting in part some of that green agenda, still using it as a tool to harm Britain and America, but applying it less and less to themselves. I was about to refer to COP26. That was in Glasgow, November 2021. Go to thetrumpet.com, type in COP26, all one word, COP26. And we, we covered that with, I think it was six articles. And that was an attractive tool for 30,000 elites and for Barack Obama in particular, you'll remember, to try to assert this new order that you're talking about, this teardown of the U.S. global order for the emergence of a European superpower and an Asian superpower for that matter. And so in the same way that, you know, when you see the United Nations, which the COP thing is a United Nations initiative, but as, as you see them trying to keep wedges in place against Israel in the Middle East with Hamas, saving Hamas, basically, uh, you're seeing environmentalism. Everybody loves clean environment. Nobody's for polluting the environment in that sense. So they're taking that and using that in the same way that they use humanitarian aid for Hamas terrorists, using this, you know, everyone loves humanitarian aid, everyone loves a clean environment, but it's being used, it's being manipulated for a different purpose. And as you said well there, Mr. Palmer, that purpose is to tear down the U.S. global order, and that relates directly to both books you mentioned, America Under Attack and United States and Britain Prophecy by Herbert W. Armstrong. You'll find both at thetrumpet.com. That is the Week in Review, Trumpet Hour, December 8th, 2023, our anniversary week. Email us your thoughts on the program, letters at thetrumpet.com. We thank our panel. We thank our producers, Parker Campbell and Isaac Lorenz. And we thank you, most of all, for listening to the Week in Review. We look forward to being back with you on Wednesday on Trumpet Hour. <laughs>